1: This is the area 941 Radio Wolinsky podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wolinsky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Book Waves program and its predecessor Probabilities. In mid-January 2022, the McMinn County School Board in Tennessee removed Art Spiegelman's Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novel Mouse about the Holocaust from the county classrooms claiming that the books used obscene language, mostly dams, and nudity, a nude mouse. This was announced the day before Holocaust Remembrance Day. In late November 2000, my former co-host Richard A. Lupoff interviewed Art Spiegelman while he was on tour for the book Little Lit. I was most likely in New York for Thanksgiving at the time. The conversation delved into the history of comic books, censorship of comic books, a short discussion of mouse, and a longer discussion of the value of comic books in education. The interview aired on December 7, 2000 on KPFA and has not aired since. It was digitized and re-edited on January 27, 2022.
0: Our guest today is Art Spiegelman, cartoonist and co-editor with his wife, Françoise Mouly, of a new book called Little Lit. Folklore and fairy tale funnies. Art, how did this book come about?
2: One does not see books like Little Lit very often. No, this was uh, what the phrase labor of love was intended for. Years ago, Francoise, my wife, and I did a, a comics magazine for adults, an avant garde comics magazine called Raw, which uh, serialized actually the book Mouse that I guess most people know me for the comic book memoir for adults about. Uh, my life with father and his life in uh, the death camps of uh, Hitler's Europe. After a certain point, it was so uh, hard to do raw, and it seemed like maybe we could stop because it had made its point. The comics could be indeed for adults, This oversized, luxurious magazine for adults seemed to have made its way into Soho galleries in the 80s in terms of the artist's work involved. And a lot of the artists who came up through RAW found their way into mainstream publications, into alternative comics magazines. And a number of other alternative comics magazines grew up that were somehow inspired by RAW. So we moved on, both of us, Francoise and I, to The New Yorker, where she's the art editor and has just done a book collection of the covers, that mostly the ones that came out under her time there from 93 on. And I did some covers that uh, achieved at least some notoriety up <laughs> there from 92 on. And we were sort of out of the self-publishing business to a degree. I stayed in a bit longer than Francois, but we were both kind of relieved not to have to uh, do this shoestring operation. Well, let, let's get back to Raw for a moment.
0: My, actually, my son first brought it to my attention, and I wasn't sure whether I was looking at a A fancy, expensive fanzine or a real, honest-to-God, professional magazine or just
2: what it was that he was showing me? Well, it was good that it was out of category and hard to understand and uh, required entering into because just about everything I've been involved in seems to not fit into any category comfortably. Fanzine, if it involves amateur and lack of production values and uh, lack of skill based on mere enthusiasm... I don't think would qualify for where Roe was coming from. A number of the people were already quite accomplished, professional, in quotes, artists. But it was a sporadical published with a mission in that we really wanted to demonstrate what comics could do. And at that time, we were flying under a banner that was saying something like, comics aren't just for kids anymore. And here, all these years later, on the back cover of this little lit book, it says comics aren't just for grown-ups anymore, which shows how much things have changed in the last 20 years. Who were the uh, talents who were involved in RAW? Well, let's see. Some who come to mind certainly include uh, some artists from a generation immediately prior, the underground comics artists, who I, many of whom I met when I was living out in the Bay Area in the early 70s, uh, which ultimately included Robert Crumb and Kim Deitch and Bill Griffith, all of whom uh, I was involved with when I edited something out here called Arcade Magazine, which was an underground comics quarterly. But then there was another generation coming along that had no room in underground comics because their stuff didn't look like it dealt with sex and drugs. It dealt mm. mostly with anxiety, which was maybe the drug of the 80s. And... Uh, <laughs> And ultimately, didn't have a place because it didn't look as enough like underground comics as they would come to be known. So that included artists like Charles Burns, uh, Mark Byer. A number of these artists have surfaced in uh, the magazine world since. Like I, I think there's a new book of Rolling Stone art that just came out that has a number of pieces by Charles Burns in it, for example.
0: Well, now, now you say they didn't look like underground comics. You're going to have to tell me what does an underground comic uh, look like and then
2: why and in what way were these different? Okay. Okay. Um, Well, let's see. I would say that the first generation of underground comics artists included uh, a very specific hearkening back to a 1920s and 1930s set of drawing styles. For example, that was one earmark of one kind of underground comic and that the comics were uh, thoroughly cross-hatched. It was the more is more rather than less is more aesthetic that had grown up in the 50s as exemplified by people like, say, Charles Schultz's Peanuts and... um, Uh, that the Gerald McBoing-Boing school of drawing. Now, the later artists who came in, some of them were in a direct continuum from that underground comic style but some of them like Charles Burns comes to mind as an example were very very polished graphically in a way that would kind of maybe conjure up uh, more Roy Lichtenstein than Mm -hmm. underground comics looking work it's artists who had been very much informed by their art school backgrounds so Gary Panter for example was another one his style being very funky and strange but definitely informed by everything from de Kooning and Picasso on around the other component of Raw magazine just to finish answering that question was the underground comics in their turn had cross-fertilized over to Europe where a number of European artists were inspired by the fact that comics didn't have to be for kids anymore and in a different environment, one in which these artists were already able to successfully work for kids with a more sophisticated kind of comic to a degree than the ones that grew up in America inspired maybe by Tintin and whatever, now said, hey, we can do comics for grown-ups and using the same skills that were already employed. They weren't a group of artists that didn't have any place in the regular comic book industry, but often were, in fact, the people at the spearhead of children's comics there, began to do comics for grown-ups and had a much more stable distribution apparatus and were able to do very luxurious comics for adults. And that wasn't coming over to America. Nobody got to see it. And we published, for the first time, a lot of those artists in Raw magazine as well, and some of them now in Little Lit. When you started serializing Mouse,
0: did you have any idea that you were going to receive the kind of reception that you did?
2: Absolutely not. I just assumed that... uh, this was the kind of work that would be discovered like 50 years after I was dead. It was kind of a shock to find out that I was only seconds ahead of my time rather than years. For
0: the sake of the one-tenth of one percent of our audience who don't know what Mouse really was, Can you in 25 words or less, oh, as they geez. say.
2: Well, it's a. Uh, I wanted to make something that was a long comic book that would require a bookmark, something that got to be called later a graphic novel or maybe earlier got to be called a graphic novel. But... It's not a phrase I admire. It's a misguided bid for respectability. Graphics are respectable. Novels are respectable. And then, poof, double respectability by calling comics graphic novels. I was just interested in making a really good, long comic book story. Since it's so arduous for me to do comics, although I like doing them, I just had to have a story worth telling if it was going to take that long for me to tell it. And so, in this case, I went back to... First the stories, I was hearing it when I was growing up and then two interviews with my father about his life in Auschwitz and in the ghettos of Europe with my mother. And at the time that I was working on Maus, which started uh, happening first in 72 as a three page underground comic story and then again in Raw as an extended work, I just tried to stick as close to the story of what he was telling me, mixed it with the story of what my relationship, which was rather dysfunctional with my father, was like, and tell that whole thing in comic book panels using cat masks and mouse masks for the Germans and Jews.
0: Why the cat masks and the mouse masks? Oh,
2: man. Sorry, I I think I've had to answer this to the point where I'm ready to confess to almost anything. Okay. But, but, um, well, it was Hitler's idea, basically, that Jews were uh, subhuman. And from there, with my collaborator, Adolf Hitler, I was able to get onto this notion Well, let's try it out as uh, people being different species. And then these masks are a kind of metaphor that are designed to fall off in the reading.
0: Did you imagine that you would be able to create a comic book that would reduce readers to tears, literally so, and that would draw the attention of the nation and the world and it would win, win a Pulitzer Prize?
2: Well, the intention wasn't the prizes, but the intention was to make a story that had characters that resonated and came to life. I think the epiphany for me was as a little kid watching a girl read a love comic and cry, and it was the first time I realized that that was a possible reaction to reading a comic book.
0: Here we are in the 21st century. This is a form that has been around since 1940, more or less unchanged, or or is it?
2: Well, I think we can probably go back to uh, mid-19th century for the stories told in sequences of pictures, but certainly popularized in America first in comic strips at the uh, turn of the century and then in comic book form, as you say, from the late 30s or so on. What happened to comic books was they had to pass through this crucible and they weren't able to do it. In the uh, early 50s, there were these hearings about comic books and juvenile delinquency that left the uh, medium devastated. Dr. Frederick Wertham wrote exactly. a book called uh, Seduction of the Innocent, saying comics are ruining our children. They're turning them into juvenile delinquents. turns out that uh, Wertham was not as bad an egg as I always grew up thinking of him as. He was actually an important uh, deposer in Brown versus Board of Education. He started the first mental health clinic, uh, free mental health clinic in Harlem. And it was with those kids where he said, these kids are all juvenile delinquents. They can't read and they're all looking at comic books, and by God, that must be the cause. Of course, milk could have been chosen as the uh, cause of juvenile delinquency with that reasoning. And the result of these hearings was the most draconian code of what was permissible in comic books from that point on that could have possibly been arranged, makes the Hayes Code look like a libertine code of, of what's possible.
0: That was the famous or infamous Comics Code Authority that would yeah. give the
2: publisher a little thing that looked like a postage stamp. A little A, favorite. Yes. yes but not for artistic. Uh, (laughs) And that code really sort of crippled what could happen in comics. A lot of the most interesting comics died. Some of them were indeed lurid and excessive, so that, although in some ways this felt to me like a witch hunt, some of the artists, by gosh, were witches, you know? And... The result of all this was babies being thrown out with bathwater. So some really wonderful comics were destroyed as well as uh, some comics that maybe weren't as wonderful. And yet all of this was part of the growing pains of a medium that was moving toward a more and more adult audience and wasn't allowed to because comics at the time were considered a kid's medium.
0: Art Spiegelman,
2: what were the best and what were the worst comics of that era, that so-called golden age of comics? Well, some of the very best for my taste. Were the ones that were the most lurid by by George. <laughs> so definitely the EC horror comics and science fiction comics, and definitely the war comics by Harvey Kurtzman. And crowning them all for me was Mad Comics, the one that took on the threat of the oncoming threat. Independent of the Dr. Wortham juvenile delinquency hearing threat, the threat of television took it on directly as subject matter, so those comics were among the most wonderful ever made and then gee, I admire Will Eisner and I admire Jack Cole, who did Plastic Man a lot as well. I have lots of favorites, and to me, what was really unfortunate was that the whole thing sort of got wiped out with a uh, one glancing brush so that all that all that was allowed to remain standing were funny animal comics, which included some the great Carl Barks Donald Duck comics on the one hand but also some rather forgettable children's comics as well as the superhero comics that were allowed to stand because the violence was so abstracted and that's what the whole genre has come to be identified with thoroughly now. A lot of it still exists in the Radiation and aura of those comics hearings is, oh, comics are a form of trash. It's still a vestigial thing that's in our heads. And yet, comics have gone through a number of conniption fits, including uh, getting a Pulitzer Prize for myself or Ben catcher getting a MacArthur grant for his comics work. So they're culturally moving into another slot. Definitely one that's geared more toward adults than children, which is why, once again, I find myself in the uncategorizable uh, Place of being slightly ahead of some curve or other, perhaps, uh, <laughs> doing comics of all things for children.
0: Well, indeed, that brings us back to Little Lit. Uh, subtitle on the book is Folklore and Fairy Tale Funnies, uh, that wonderful alliterative phrase which sounds like something out of classic era comic books.
2: Well, the inspiration for this book was definitely something we reprinted inside, which was Walt Kelly's uh, fairy tale parade story of the gingerbread man in comics format seemed to me that that was one of the comics that got thrown out with the bathwater somehow. Uh, and that uh, was very intelligent adaptations of fairy tales into comics format from the 40s. And so as well as having very contemporary artists doing their fairy tale adaptations into comics form, including some very well-known children's book artists who were trying comics for the first time in Little Lit, in all these instances, it was following the lead that was set in that uh, one really nice comic from the 40s.
0: When school teachers see this in a bookstore... Maybe they're attracted by the large format, the bright, colorful cover on it, but they open it up and they say to themselves, oh, it's just a comic book.
2: They put it back down. Or
0: do you think you'll get a a positive I think enough time
2: has passed so that uh, that can be different than it was in the 1950s, although some of the older school teachers might still have a problem (laughs) if they're they're not totally retired and out of business by now. But I think that one thing that makes it more plausible is some of the children's book artists themselves over the years have obviously been comics, uh, literate, and cared about comics, and the comic book format has been sneaking into children's books bit by bit so that Maurice Sendak, who's doing a story for the uh, sequel to this little lit book, Wanted to be a comic book artist when he was a kid and did a uh, children's book, in fact, that's a classic at this point in the night kitchen that's thoroughly informed by the old Mickey Mouse comics and by Little Nemo and indeed has multiple boxes and balloons. And there it is. It's a classic comic. In the first issue here, we have a story by Barbara McClintock, who's uh, now quite a renowned children's book illustrator. As soon as I saw one of her kid books, I said, this woman wants to be a comic book artist. So we got in touch with her and lo and behold found that as a kid, all she did all day was draw comic books. And the idea of being invited in to actually do it again just wowed her so there we have her princess and the peace story in the first issue yes. william joyce also has a strong background in comics you know uh and as a result i think it's informed a number of the um, leading children's book artists today so most children's book librarians should at least have that bouncing in the back of their heads going oh okay i can see the connection between william joyce's other books and his contribution of a humpty dumpty story in this book
0: let's talk about walt kelly a little bit animal funnies pogo and albert Mm-hmm.
2: Peter Wheat. What else did Kelly do? Why was he important? Well, gee, I think Kelly... It's amazing to me how many people don't know Kelly anymore, but only know perhaps the uh, slogan, we've met the enemy and they are us, uh, that somehow survived into the culture past his Pogo comic strip. But he was somebody who came from... You know, there's something very interesting happening in our culture. Now, I have to answer your question from sideways here. Okay, that's okay. Um, which is that I think we're living at a moment where... Adulthood and childhood is blurring. The demarcation line isn't as clear as it used to be. As adults go off into violent superhero-like movies, as children don't even have to become literate to enter into the culture, as long as they can kind of cruise around on a computer and play video games, they're not that far away from being grown-ups, much earlier than they used to be. And the the lines in our entertainment and culture make it a lot harder to to define that moment where childhood might end. And Kelly did something very interesting, which is he came out of the Walt Disney Animation Studios, doing definitely animation for G-rated, but really for children, moved into these children's comic books and then adapted a lot of the language from those early comic books into doing some of the more sophisticated political commentary that was allowed to appear in newspapers, but under the guise of that very friendly children's cartoon style. And this leads me, again, right back into the Little Lit Project, where several things are going on at once here. One is it seems the comic's have proven themselves to be very efficacious at teaching children how to read and love books. At a moment where the book is under threat, it seems useful to make a beautiful book, one that one would like to return to over and over again, that can allow children to discover the pleasures of stories, which is what led us to fairy tales as well, because fairy tales are stories that have been market-tested for generation after generation, and by gosh, they've somehow managed to hold up and get passed on. And here specifically, we wanted to do something that was G-rated in the sense of being for children, but also for the adults that are reading to them, since um, as... Um, One of the contributors, J. Otto Sebold, put it uh, just a little while ago, and I was talking to him. He's a children's book artist who said, Adults are the ambassadors who bring this culture to to their children. And essentially, they have to do in this format, certainly. They're the ones with the 20 bucks, not the kid. They have to want to be able to bring this home to the child, feel comfortable reading it to the kid and enjoy it themselves, for it not to just be uh, an exercise in futility. And so this was designed to appeal to, as they like to call it, all ages.
0: You have mentioned several times the notion of children learning to read by first reading comic books. Yeah, I think then, it's demonstrable And then moving point. on into what we would think
2: of as more mm-hmm. uh, conventional literacy. Well, that's what led us into Little yes. Lit. I learned to read from reading comic books first. My wife in France learned to read, as a kid in France, comic books were the gateway. Our children, because I've had to sacrifice a very valuable comic uh, collection to fatherhood, learned to read from comic books. And what we found is since our kids don't get to watch a heck of a lot of TV like some of their friends, they'd like to go over to their pals' houses and watch television or play video games, their friends would come over to the house and immediately dive into the boxes of old comic books that were at our place and love them without having to be steered toward them. They just enjoyed looking at the stories, reading them. They're, in some ways, a very clear pathway to reading in that, for example... In the 40s, Superman comics tried these experiments with phonics workbooks that they put into the schools. And the only problem they had with the phonics workbooks was the kids would do their phonics homework for a whole semester in a week. But this all all got wiped out as part of those comic book hearings in the 50s. So in any case, it seems demonstrable to me that comics work well as a way of teaching kids to enjoy the pleasures of a story and read for themselves, even more so than most picture books.
0: What has the educational establishment said about this?
2: Well, I think a lot, to a large degree, they're still under the sway of uh, that 50s uh, idea that comics are all only lurid. They're only gateways to the uh, id monsters. On the other hand... In France, it's an accepted fact that comics are used to teach kids to read. We've read a few um, specialized articles about exactly that in French. And what we're finding clearly, is, as I'm going around and talking about this now on the radio, especially in phone-in situations, I'm getting the most amazing data coming my way, like uh, uh, more than once, somebody calling up and saying, my child uh, is autistic, my child has reading disabilities, and comic books are what helped socialize my child, and comic books are what helped my child learn how to read. And that's anecdotal, but it's, there's a lot of this coming my way. Uh, one of the more interesting stories to me was a woman with an autistic uh, son who learned not only how to read, but how to be socialized. Because, you know, you do read comics from left to right, so by looking at pictures left to right, you're already getting something about decoding signs, which happens when you're trying to crack this code, this alphabetic code. But also he learned that when somebody has a speech bubble above their head, you don't interrupt. <laughs> really? And that comes from the fact that comics are telling stories in time. You know, But they're representing it spatially, so you can kind of slow it down and see each moment of time on that page.
0: What is the present status of comic books?
2: Well, like I say, I think it's changing. Some days I get up and think I'm at the vanguard of uh, a new dawn, and other days I get up and think I'm the last stereopticon card manufacturer.
0: <laughs> well, what about—let's l- address that same question in a broader context. Some people have suggested that we are members of you and I, or, or maybe our children at the very latest— are the members of the last really literate generation that they're moving into electronic media or other media. Uh, They'll know how to work with computer screens, but the book as we have known it, whether it's the book with all words or the comic book, is essentially in its last days.
2: Well, we'll see. The book is a very effective retrieval system, easier to navigate than most computers and less likely to crash. So that, uh, although, yes, in the long run, books and comics and all kinds of uh, works on paper are no longer going to have exactly the same central position they've had in our culture up to now, that doesn't mean that they necessarily get wiped out. And I think we can't talk at the same time about books being wiped out and literacy being wiped out. And I think literacy, per se, is essential to have any kind of civilization as we know it continue. It's just a part of the thought processes necessary to even make computers and to program them. So that I would say that part of the mission of doing Little Lit was to create a situation mm-hmm. in which people would learn to love books, as I do. I mean, I, I think whatever happens to comics that might happen on a, a cathode ray screen or an LED screen is an interesting permutation, but won't be comics anymore as I know it. Because at that point, why have them be still and have boxes next to each other? You might as well have them animated and with sound. The limitations that come with the book are useful limitations. And I figure ultimately, it's a little bit like McLuhan. you know? Marshall McLuhan pointed out that Uh, Every medium subsumes the content of the medium that came before on its way to defining itself so that early movies were called, say, photo plays and then defined themselves as something other than just photographed plays unless they're merchant and ivory films. (laughs) And similarly, I would also point out that, uh, let's see, the McLuhan-esque dictum was that after a mass medium is no longer necessary as a mass medium, it either becomes extinct or evolves into an art form. An example of that might, let's say, be uh, the woodcut. The woodcut was once the major purveyor of printed information. No longer was needed for that, but artists found it a useful means of self-expression. It was a medium that no longer has the centrality in the culture, but is still a part of the culture. Theater offers things that can be, in some ways, one would argue, more efficiently delivered on a cathode ray screen but there's pleasures that happen with a live performance similarly comics have their pleasures and have their capacities to do something that can't possibly happen in a a more dynamically active in quotes art form visual art form to tell stories animated cartoons movies move too quick you experience them in some kind of in quotes heightened real time and as a result i've seen with my kids they get incredibly freaked out by things that they've seen as movies that probably weren't the best movies for them to see at a given moment.
0: Give me an example.
2: Okay. By a confession that I made in The New Yorker as well in a comic strip this summer, when my son Dashiell was uh, about six years old, I wanted to take him to see ben Hur. Well, Ben-Hur wasn't playing that day, but Spartacus was. I didn't remember that clearly, didn't think much about it, and figured, hey, one sandal and sword epic, another, (laughs) it's all the same. It wasn't all the same, and Dash was really unhinged by uh, the battle between uh, Tony Curtis and Kirk Douglas, in which Kirk Douglas kills his best friend in order to save him from being crucified so that he himself would go on the cross and die slowly, which is the fade-out scene of the movie. Kirk Douglas as Spartacus crucified along the the Appian Way. The Appian Way, coming out of Rome with his wife, tearfully looking up holding their baby son up and she's saying to him die quickly my darling die quickly and I was assuring him this movie would have a happy ending and it really <laughs> uh, I didn't come no. af- I didn't come through <laughs> for my son I guess I hadn't seen it or I didn't remember it in any case this really unhinged him and it took a long time like for a year or more he was talking about that movie very unhappily now my daughter who's slightly over, older Nao, when she was uh, a little baby the first movie I remember her seeing was on a videotape it was The Red Balloon Presumably a a totally benign film. But when that balloon pops, she knew it was meant to represent a death. It felt like a death to her. And she screamed, and she was really unhappy and didn't buy into the Christian hogwash at the end where all the balloons rise and go to heaven. So she was really upset. And there we had a videotape. Now, a videotape is one step more manageable than a film that moves hurtling by in that we were able to go by, freeze frame, talk about it with our very young daughter, and essentially turn that movie into a comic book by doing at least one panel after another freeze frame, talk about it, let her see these things several times so she could master the narrative. Comics allow you to master a narrative because you can go back, return to them, see picture next to picture, and study it. The,
0: these two incidents that you described, Art Spiegelman, your son seeing Spartacus, your daughter seeing the red balloon, raise a fascinating question in my mind, which is this. To what extent do our earliest cultural experiences form our entire cultural orientation to the world and and in a broader sense our whole personalities. Do you remember the first comic book you read? Do you remember the first movie you saw?
2: The first movie was a real bore. It was Rob Roy. And I kept thinking there were people behind the stage moving around on this movie screen. (laughs) And I kept begging my father to change the channel. (laughs) (laughs) The first uh, comic book, gee... I remember an early comic book I saw, which was Batman, uh, that a neighbor had a a stack of. And I just kept trying to figure out if Batman was a good guy or a bad guy, because he looked kind of sinister to me. So it was probably after I'd already looked at some um, Carl Barks Donald Duck comics or things like that. But that one really puzzled me. And actually, it was my gateway to reading. I had to figure out if Batman was a good guy or a bad guy. And only by translating the hieroglyph balloons above his head could I figure any of this stuff out. So did you teach yourself to read then? Yeah, pretty early, too. And like I said, comics really did work in that sense for me.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Art Spiegelman, whose Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novel Mouse was banned from classrooms in McMinn County, Tennessee, the day before Holocaust Remembrance Day. The interview was conducted by my former co-host Richard A. Lupoff while I was out of town and aired on December seventh, 2000. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.